his, uh, his love for us should elicit a response, right? Uh, his love for us isn't just, ah, uh, and I just sit there and, and take it in, right? Uh, it should, we should respond, I think, in two ways. Love for him, and we've, I think, expressed that this morning in worship. And he also says, uh, love for others, right? Two greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so I just want to take a, a second uh, before we get into our, our passage today to encourage you guys, to exhort you guys that we moved here a couple years ago, I think it, it is, and we said we want to engage our community, we want to uh, represent Christ here in this community, and we, we've had some opportunities to do that, and we have another one in just a week on Saturday, simple opportunity, Stater Brothers hand out some, some, some things that people want and need and I think will like, a little bag with our, our logo on it, you know, and so I would... Uh, I'm a, I'll just be honest, not that I'm not always honest, but I'll, I'll be honest uh, in that way. You know, I'm a little disappointed that, that, like, there's five people signed up right now to give out bags. Uh, I think, you know, we had 30 people here interested in going to Malawi. Whew, we'll get on that plane, but uh, we can't, we need 16 people. You know, we need four slots, four hours, the so two people at each door. And I, I'm just going to encourage you guys. I hope when I leave today that that sheet will be full, that we'll be, have more than 16 people willing to just come out for an hour on a Saturday. And, you know, we're not asking you to present the gospel, to preach, to, we're not giving anybody megaphones. Hey, would you, would you like a, a shopping bag as you go in today for free? And you, that's fine. That's, that's all you have to do. If you get in a conversation, that would be great. And there will be people there. Uh, that can help you if, if somebody wants to talk about the church and stuff. You're not going to be on your own. So I, I would just exhort you, as God has loved you, let's love our community and do this together. Okay? Thanks. Uh, another thing just about the bags. Anthon, had, we had, had the picture of the bag with that $3 sign up there. He didn't mention what that meant. They didn't cost us $3. They were a little less than that. Hallelujah. We, we got about 500 of them. We're hoping to have some left. Well, if we give them all out that day, great, we'll get more. But uh, they were a little less than a dollar each. And we're, if you guys want one, that, that's what the three dollars is. We're going to ask you, the body of Christ, <laughs> to, to, if you want one or two or something, to uh, three dollars just to help subsidize the cost a little bit. So that's what the three dollars was for. Okay, moving on. Let me just, as I'm in the announcement mood... Uh, Let me reinforce what Evelyn said this morning just about the finances. If you're a woman and uh, you want to go to the retreat and it could be a financial hardship on you, do not let that be an issue. Uh, We we want you to go there. We want our women to be together. We want them to be encouraged and we'll help in that area. Okay? All right. Now to uh, our passage. Well, not not quite yet. I have a little uh, story-ish to share beforehand. He made free use of Christian vocabulary. He talked about the the blessing of the Almighty and the Christian confessions, which would become the pillars of the new government. He handed out pious stories to the press. He showed his tattered Bible and 
declared that he drew the strength for his great work from it as scores of pious people welcomed him as a man sent from God. Indeed, Adolf Hitler was a master of outward religiosity with no inward reality. And unfortunately, he's not alone. Although he's in maybe the extreme, you know, whenever you want to make a point, bring up Hitler. Okay, uh, he's the extreme example. But in our passage for today, and often I think in our daily lives, we reveal the same tendency towards religious hypocrisy. Today we, we come to chapter 2 in the book of Romans, in our series through Romans. Paul's continuing to make this argument this argument that he began in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. He wants everyone to understand this simple truth that no one is righteous, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because of our sin, our unrighteousness, we are subject to, we are under, we will receive the wrath of God. He makes this argument Uh, so that everyone will understand the need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the good news is that by trusting in Christ, you are made righteous before God. And uh, because you're made righteous, you therefore can escape the wrath of God. Over the last five weeks, we've been looking at Romans 8, 1... Romans 8, not even close. Romans 1, verse 18 through 32... This is, what the, this is the first part of Paul's argument, this, this section. Paul shows that humanity in general, and I'm thinking as I've been reading it and studying it and reading things about it, it really is human, more humanity in general, and specifically uh, uh, gen, the Gentile world, the, the pagan Gentiles. He's been showing their uh, sinfulness, their unrighteousness, that because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness about God, the truth that he revealed through his creation, his eternal nature, his divine uh, mercy and wisdom, that they are corrupted. That because of this suppression, there's corruption. And then, and then because of the corruption, they make this foolish exchange. They exchange the glory of God for, for images, for, for idols. They reject their creator, the one true God, in favor of false gods, gods of their own making. And because of this, they receive... The wrath of God. God gives them over to unrestrained sin. God gives them over to their own corruption. He allows and even causes them to fall deeper and deeper into sin and its uh, horrendous consequences. So that was the first part of the argument that no one is righteous. And so I think he was pretty clear. No one is righteous. And in chapter 2, we find the second part of this argument. But I want us to see that from chapter 1, verse 32, to chapter 2, verse 1, there's a shift, a change Paul makes. And to help us see it, I'm going to read from uh, Romans 1.28 all the way th- to the end of chapter 1, and then our passage for today, Romans 2, chapter, uh, Romans 2 verses 1 through 5. So follow along, it'll be on the board, and again, if you want to look at a, a Bible and didn't bring one, there's Bibles in the... Thanks. Yeah, thanks. Romans one twenty eight. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to, debase, to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. 
They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So that's the end of chapter 1. Now, notice the change in chapter 2. Therefore, you, that was a clue, by the way, have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So let me ask the question, how does Paul signify that he's changing his argument here from chapter 1 to chapter 2? Anyone? You, you, chapter one, uh, from 18 to 33, it was they, it was them, it was there, it was the third person plural. And now beginning in chapter two, it shifts to the second person singular, actually, to you, you. Now, why does Paul make this change? Well, based on, uh, well, because in chapter two, he's, he's now speaking to a different group of people speaking about a different group of people. In chapter 1, the focus was on humanity in general, specifically the Gentile world, people who through history have continued to reject and replace God with something else, false gods, uh, false religions, uh, materialism, anything but the true God. So the question is, who's he talking about in chapter 2? Now since he's writing the letter to the church in Rome, the obvious answer Uh, would be that he's now addressing the Roman Christians. Okay, you are the ones reading this. And in one sense, that's true. The whole thing is to them and and for their learning and for their edification. But but most scholars agree that Paul is using a a popular ancient literary style here. We don't, I don't think, uh, we, we don't find this in our literature much, if any. Liam can correct me if... If, if, if I'm wrong here. In this style, a writer teaches his audience, the audience is the Roman Christians, the Roman church, by letting them listen in on a discussion between himself and a representative of a third viewpoint. You get it? So, so, so what viewpoint is this third person, this you, represent? Again, from the context, it seems clear, likely, that he's addressing the Jewish world now. Okay, Throughout the letter, Paul has divided. Uh, we've seen it once, and we'll see it a couple times again. Paul divides people into two groups. There's the Jews, the chosen people of God, that have the covenant and the law, and then there's everybody else, the Greeks, the Gentiles. Romans 1.16, if you remember. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, to the Gentile. Just in a few verses after this, 
After our passage in uh, Romans chapter 2.9, he's going to say, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. First to the Jew, the Jew first, and also to the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, the Jew first and also to the Greek. We'll look at those verses in a minute. The point is, he's dividing. There's, there's, there's Jews and then there's Greeks. There's people that God chose and worked with and, 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 and used and made a covenant with and gave his law. And then there's the rest of humanity. And in Romans 2.17, Paul specifically addresses the group, I think, the viewpoint he's speaking to. But if you call yourself a Jew, and then we'll go on and we'll look at that when we get there. So in Romans 1.18-32, Paul's speaking about the unrighteousness of, of pagan Gentiles. Uh, uh, the, the they is the Gentile world. And in Romans 2.1... All the way to 3.9, Paul is going to speak about the unrighteousness of uh, religious Jews. The you is the Jew. That's funny. Okay. And then after that, from 2.10 to, uh, I think it's 20, he's going to summarize the whole thing. Everybody. He's going to lump us all together, and we're going to see uh, we're all in, in, in trouble. But just like we saw, so it's the Gentiles, the Jews, and just like we saw with regards to the Gentiles, Paul's also speaking to us. He's speaking to the Roman church. He's speaking to Christians. We, for the most part, are not pagan Gentiles. And we are not religious Jews. But in both cases, Paul addresses uh, sin that we as humans, even Christians, are prone to fall into. In fact, I think it's this section written about the religious Jew. I think we as religious Christians find our greatest parallels. We may not have made uh, that overt, uh, foolish exchange. We may not be worshiping idols. We may uh, be seeking to worship God. We may not be involved in overt, sinful behavior. But like the Jews of Paul's day in the church, we can be prone to religious sin. Specifically, the sin of hypocrisy. And that's the first thing that Paul is going to address in chapter 2. And it's my prayer that as we examine these, just these five verses, and we'll look at some, some other things in, in, in Scripture that talks about them, that, that God will reveal to us, that He'll convict us, that He'll rid us of any religious hypocrisy that we have in our lives. So let's examine Romans 2, 1-5. through 5. Again, not focusing on, on how unrighteous other people, other groups of people are, but let's focus on and be warned about how unrighteous and hypocritical we can be. So that we might, in the power of the gospel, repent of our own sin and run from our own hypocrisy. And do that, and to do that, the first thing I want us to see, understand, is really the definition of hypocrisy. If you find the definition just in that first verse there, Romans 2.1. We'll get to it in a second. Therefore, he says, you have no excuse. This phrase, therefore, and the, the no excuse is really tying what's in chapter 2 back to, to chapter 1, what's gone before. Remember, in Romans 1.20, Paul wrote, for his inv- speaking of God, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. They, uh, Gentiles, humanity, uh, 
see there is a God from creation. They see His eternal uh, power, divine nature. And so they're without excuse when they suppress the truth about God. They're without excuse when they make the foolish exchange. They're without excuse when they reject the God who's revealed Himself and replace Him with anything else. But they, the pagan Gentiles, are not alone. Therefore, Paul says, in the same way, you, religious Jews, have no excuse. O man, every one of you who judges. Why don't you have an excuse? Because you're judging others. You're judging those that Paul spoke about in chapter 1. You're judging the, the sexually, sexually immoral of Romans 1, 24-27. You're judging those who are described in Romans 1, 29-31. They, they were filled with unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful. Take a breath. Okay. Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. When Paul says, oh man, every one of you who judges, he means you're setting yourself up as a judge over those who practice these things that I've just listed. You're, you're reading this list and you're feeling pretty, pretty good about yourself. I'm pretty, I'm pretty good. Uh, you're getting up on your high horse and, and you're feeling self-righteous. You're thinking and saying and acting as if those people that he's just described, yeah, that's not me. Those are the bad guys. Those are the worst of sinners. And why is this a problem? Paul continues, For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. These two words, uh, judgment or judge and condemn, are, are similar Greek words. They're not the same, but they're from the same root. And they are often used interchangeably in the New Testament. Paul is saying when you judge another... You're really judging yourself. When you condemn another, you're condemning yourself. And why is it that when you judge another, you condemn yourself? It's not just because you're judging. Not a good idea. But here's the key. Because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. Things. Plural. There it is. That's the definition of hypocrisy. There are two requirements for being a hypocrite. If, if you're aspiring to that goal, here they are. First, you are judging. You're condemning someone for their sin. Putting yourself, put, you're putting them down and be, believing yourself as better. While second, you're practicing the very same things. And when Paul says the very same things, let's, let's be clear, he's referring to all the sins in chapter 1 and more. That's not an exhaustive list. He's referring to sin. He doesn't just mean you condemn, you're a hypocrite when you condemn, you condemn yourself when you judge someone who's doing the exact same thing you are. He doesn't just mean that a, a hypocrite is only someone who's full of envy and judges someone else who's full of envy. Yes, he means that. But he also means you condemn yourself, you're a hypocrite, when you judge someone who is practicing sexual immorality while you are practicing deceit or gossip or any other sin. So the definition of hypocrisy is this. Hypocrisy means judging, condemning someone for their sinful practices while you are, yourself, practicing sin. We see this illustrated for us in the Gospel of John, chapter 8. The scribes and Pharisees, 
Remember one of Jesus' favorite word for, uh, descriptions of these guys? Oh, you gospel readers. Oh, you hypocrites. Thank you. That's what we're talking about. He, they, these guys bring a woman caught in the act of adultery to Jesus. And they say to him, now, in the law of Moses, uh, now, in the law of Moses, commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Uh, the thing was, the Mo- Moses' law said to stone him, but the Romans didn't allow him to stone him, so Jesus was sort of caught in a, between a rock and a hard place there. Uh-huh. Jesus bent down, though. Can you catch Jesus in a rock and a hard place? No. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. So you see, the woman was caught in an act of adultery, but the men were caught in an act of hypocrisy. They were judging this woman for adultery while practicing their own secret sins. Many believe that when Jesus bent down and, and wrote with his finger on the ground, many believe he was, he was writing their secret sins. Some have said, uh, you know, the commandment numbers that they were breaking or something like that. What Paul is teaching and what Jesus illustrates is that just like the Gentiles, you, the Jew, have no excuse before God because you're a hypocrite. You judge, you condemn people for their sin while at the same time practicing sin yourself. Now does this mean, does this mean, since we are all sinners, raise your hand if you're sinners, no, don't, that we cannot oppose sin. We can't oppose, we're sinners, we can't oppose sin without being a hypocrite. Some would say Yes. That's the answer. We cannot make a judgment about the sins of others. This is the, I'm calling it the dilemma of hypocrisy. How are we sinners, saved by grace, supposed to respond to sin in our world? Or more importantly, how are we to respond to to sin in the lives of the people we know? How should should I as a pastor, how should the elders uh, of the church respond when we discover a member of the church is involved in... uh, let's say, an adulterous affair. Knowing that we ourselves struggle in other areas of sin. To avoid being called a hypocrite ourselves, should we condone or ignore the sins of the world? The sins of others? I would say, of course not. Common sense. And the Bible teaches that as a Christian, we're called to respond to sin. We'll respond to evil. Respond to injustices in our world. Romans 12.9, Paul says, Abhor, hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Ephesians 5.11, Paul writes, Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. The question, however, the question is not uh, should we respond or not. The question is how should we respond to the sins of others. The hypocrite responds with judgment and condemnation. They sit on their high horse and act as if they are holy and pure and without sin. But the proper response to sin, or more specifically to a sinner, is not from a high horse, but from a position of low humility. To take a lesson from Paul... Uh, Paul, who condemned, on the one hand, condemned sin in all its forms, but on the other hand, 
freely admitted that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I'm the biggest sinner there is, Paul says. As we address or respond to sin in our world or into the lives, in the lives of people we know, people we love, we must begin by admitting our own past or present sin, sharing that it's only by the grace of God through Christ Jesus that we are saved from our sin, that we, ha- that, that we have been able to overcome the sin in our life only because of Christ. We must respond to sinners with humility, not hypocrisy. And we talked about this several weeks ago. We also must respond with uh, conviction and with compassion. This is how Jesus responded to that same woman at the well caught in adultery. After all the men caught in a hypocrisy walked away, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus responds with conviction against the sin of adultery. Telling the woman to sin no more. This is not a a thing you should be doing. This is not something you should be practicing. But he also responds with compassion. Not condemning her for her sin. This is how Paul teaches us to respond to a fellow believer caught in sin. In Galatians 6.1 he writes, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Or to respond with conviction, confronting, uh, not ignoring the sin of our brothers, the sins of our sisters, but with compassion, seeking to restore in a spirit of gentleness, speaking the truth in love. And notice the humility. Keep watch, lest you be tempted. Remember, there, but for the grace of God, go I. We see this also, Matthew 7. Jesus is specifically addressing the hypocrite. He says, judge not, and you will not be judged. Now let me stop there for a second. Uh, This is probably one of the most quoted things that Jesus ever said. People love to say this, right? My 20-year-old niece paraphrases it. She just says, don't be judgy. Right? Jesus' words here are often used to argue that we should condone or ignore the sins of others. But as We've seen, and as we'll see in the verses that follow, what Jesus says, this is not what the Bible teaches. When Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged, he's speaking of that hypocritical, high horse, condemning judgment. He's not speaking of a humble, compassionate confrontation of sin. He continues, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck? That is in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in. I mean, have you ever pictured this? It's just funny. I see this big log in your brother's eye. Let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Notice Jesus doesn't say condone, ignore sin. Don't ignore the speck in your brother's eye. But the emphasis, the priority, is that first and foremost, don't be a hypocrite. Focus first on on your sin. 
Dealing with your sin, coming to God with your sin, repenting of your sin, confessing your sin to God. To deal with, repent of your own sin uh, in humility before you in humility and compassion help remove the speck from your brother's eye. So the answer to the dilemma of hypocrisy is not condoning or even ignoring the sin in the lives of others, which, by the way, is much easier, right? Uh, I just don't... I've, never mind. It's, it, it's easier, right? We don't like confrontation. But the answer is to begin by dealing with the sin in your own life, you know, as you see the sin in others, and then you realize, oh, there's me. That, that should drive you to God, dealing with that sin. And then with conviction and compassion and humility, helping others, helping your brothers, your sisters deal with the sin in their lives. So we've solved the dilemma of hypocrisy. Amen? All right. Now let's see the delusion of hypocrisy. Uh, dictionary.com. That's my source for all things, uh, definitions, and uh, what's that other thing? Synonyms, thesaurus, love the thesaurus. Uh, Dictionary.com defines delusion as a false belief that is resistant to reason or actual fact. Let me give you an example, uh, a lighthearted example of a delusion that many men of my age suffer from. Uh, let's see the slide. Right? You get the idea. You see the false belief in the mirror, re- resisting the actual fact. And in Romans uh, 2 2, we begin with the actual fact. Paul says, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. The such things that Paul's referring to are the, the sins listed in chapter 1. Sin in general. He's saying that, yes, it's a given, it's a fact. Everyone agrees. Those who practice these sins will receive the judgment of God. However, and this is the first illusion, the first false belief, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? This is the delusion that the hypocrite suffers from. He thinks that that he is somehow exempt from God's judgment. That for some reason, his sin is different from the sins of others. Paul knew this was the case for his his fellow Jews. They believed that they were somehow special and therefore exempt from God's judgment. They assumed that they were better than the Gentiles. That because they were uh, God's chosen people, then surely they were immune from judgment. That God would definitely judge the sin of the Gentiles. They looked forward to God judging the Gentiles. But he would overlook their sin. But Paul says, you who judge others and yet practice such things yourselves, you will not escape the judgment of God. Paul then adds in verse 4, or or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Again, more delusional thinking. Presuming on, or as the NIV translate, showing contempt for God's kindness his forbearance, his patience. They were taking God's kindness for granted. Now, now God's kindness is a real, true thing. Praise the Lord. Paul emphasizes by saying the riches of his kindness. And, and from his kindness uh, comes his forbearance or his tolerance. He's, he's tolerant and patient or, or long-suffering. 
And therefore, because of God's kindness, God's justice does not demand that He punish sin immediately. Isn't that helpful? Isn't that great? His kindness leads uh, Him to tolerate and be patient with our sin. God may endure months and years and decades of stubbornness, of rebellion, of even rejection of Him. Uh, The very fact that any of us is alive today is because of His great kindness. He could have rightly and justly been done with humanity thousands of years ago. The flood without the ark would have done the job, right? But here we are. And this is because of God's kindness. And this should lead us to glorify God, to honor God, to worship God, and to repent before God. But instead, we delude ourselves into thinking that since God has shown His great kindness, forbearance, patience in the past, that He will continue to do so forever. We misinterpret His kindness for tolerance. Eternal tolerance. We believe uh, we're special and God doesn't really care that much about our sin. We don't understand the purpose of His kindness. That it's not to exempt us from uh, judgment forever. The Jews were deluded into regarding God's kindness to them as a free pass to sin. And this is where I believe as Christians, we can in the same way fall into delusional thinking. We too can presume or show contempt for God's kindness toward us using it as this free pass for sin. We believe that once we are saved, quote-unquote, that our sin uh, doesn't matter. It won't be judged. We can always be forgiven. We think God will simply overlook our sin because of His love for us, because of, because of what Christ did for us. Then we, when we sin, we say things like, uh, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Now that might be true. I'm not saying it's not true, but it is not an excuse for us to sin, which some use it as. When we do that, we're on dangerous ground. Sin is a serious matter, whether you're a, if you're not a Christian, and maybe even more if you are in Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. Scripture teaches that the believer, the true believer, is eternally secure in Christ. That, our, that all of our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven in Christ. But the Scripture also teaches, and we sometimes avoid this one, That when we truly trust Christ, when we truly give our lives to Christ, when we give Him our our lives, when He becomes our our Lord and Savior, that a transformation begins to take place. That we become new creatures in Christ. There's an actual work of God in our hearts. And that our lives will not be, and therefore our lives will not be characterized by sin. The Apostle John, speaking of Christ, wrote, he's the same guy that wrote, uh, sorry, we won't go there. I forgot what I was going to say. The Apostle John, speaking of Christ, wrote, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. 
The Apostle John also wrote, I remember, if we, if we say we're without sin, we deceive ourselves. We fall into a different kind of delusion. We're sinless. So he's not saying, John, doesn't mean that all believers will never sin. He means that we will not continue in our sin. Sin will not be the pattern, uh, the habit. That's what the, the Greek here means, uh, of our life. And therefore, if you call yourself a Christian and yet keep on sinning, living a lifestyle of sin, a pattern of sin, sin that you're aware of, sin that God has made clear to you, and you're just saying Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven, Lord Jesus, you're deluding yourself. We'll deal more with this in chapter 6, but let me, let me finish here. This is, this is like his topic in chapter 6. The Bible teaches that if you're doing this, then, then you have never actually experienced the grace of God in your life. You've not experienced the forgiveness of God in your life because God's kindness leads you to repentance. The Bible teaches you've never truly trusted in Christ. You may believe He died on the cross for your sins, but you never turned your life over to Him as Lord and Savior. And that's a delusional place to be. Thinking you can uh, presume upon His kindness. Presume upon the kindness of Christ who died for your sins. Thinking you can continue in your sin, never repenting, never obeying Christ as your Lord. So we've seen the delusion of hypocrisy. The belief that you can judge others while continuing in your sin. And the belief that you can continue to live in sin and somehow avoid judgment and somehow call yourself a Christian. This is delusional and it's dangerous. The danger of hypocrisy. Paul said that God's kindness should lead us to repentance. But for those who do not repent, Romans chapter 2, verse 5, uh, Paul adds, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, Paul describes the heart of hypocrisy, it's hard, it's stubborn, it's self-righteous. It doesn't believe it. It needs anything or anyone. And it's impenitent. That word means unrepentant. The heart of hypocrisy. Even though it has experienced the kindness and forbearance and patience of God, it will not repent of its sins. And, and repent, just so you know, doesn't mean, uh, uh, Lord, I- I'm really sorry, I sinned in this way. I know in my mind I have an appointment to do the same thing tomorrow, but today I'm sorry. That's not repentance. Repentance is, Lord, forgive me of this sin and and help me to turn to You and stop this sin. And even if you do do it again tomorrow, it's repenting is that. It's not planning forward that I'm going to continue in the sin while thinking this, this magic grace dust will fall upon me for this day. The heart of hypocrisy, even though it has experienced this kindness, it will not repent of living an outward, outwardly religious lifestyle, giving lip service to God, but judging, condemning others, and practicing the same things that it's condemning others of doing. And because of this, Paul says, you are storing up wrath for your... This is not good news. 
You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Remember Romans 1.18? We were introduced to humanity's greatest problem for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then we saw how, how that wrath is, is even now being revealed in, to humanity in the Gentile world by God giving them over to their sinful ways, to their corruption. And we see it all around us, the effects of sin in our world. Now here in Romans 2.5, as Paul speaking to the Jew, to the religious world, to the hypocrite, he says something uh, different about God's wrath. God's wrath is still uh, very real, but for the Jew, the religious person who maybe is avoiding that outward appearance of sin. It's a lot of internal heart stuff. Avoiding those immediate consequences. It may seem that they're avoiding God's wrath. In fact, the Jew of Paul's day believed that because of their covenant relationship with God, they would escape wrath completely. But Paul says, it, it may look that way, but make no mistake, you're storing up wrath for yourself. You, Jew, religious person, you hypocrite, are in grave danger. You will see and receive the full measure of God's wrath on the day of wrath at that final judgment. Now that's an awful thing to consider. And so we're not going to stop there, because there's an alternative. And as we come to the communion table uh, this morning, to rem- we remember that alternative. This is always the alternative, by the way. This is always the alternative. This is always the answer. The alternative that Paul introduced uh, before he started talking about wrath. He wanted to lay that out first. And, and this is the defeat of hypocrisy. And it's the defeat of, of all sins. In Romans 1, 16-17, Paul wrote, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the alternative to the revelation of God's wrath against the Gentiles, against the Jews. The alternative of the revelation of God's wrath against sinners and hypocrites. The alternative of God's wrath against all humanity is found in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's found in Christ. It's found in the one who gave himself up. The one whose body was broken and who who shed his blood. Who went to the cross in our place. Who took on the wrath of God that we deserved. And who by his death, by his resurrection, enables those of us who trust him those of us who receive Him as our Savior and as our Lord, to receive the righteousness of God and, and to be transformed by that righteousness. So, so whether you identified more in the, as we, uh, you know, the last few weeks with this immoral pagan Gentiles and their blatant sins, or with the religious Jews and their secret sins of hypocrisy, it doesn't matter. Both are destined to receive the wrath of God. And both have the same alternative, the same answer, the only alternative to trust in the one we celebrate this morning with communion, to trust in Jesus Christ, to give our lives to Christ, that we might receive the righteousness of God and escape the wrath of God.
And so before we receive communion together, I want us to take uh, a moment to pray, to prepare our hearts, uh, to, to talk to God. And if there are people here this morning who've never truly trusted in Jesus Christ before, I'd encourage you uh, this morning, call to Him in prayer. Give your life to Him. Don't live in the delusion that you can receive Christ's saving work without allowing Him to be the Lord of your life. Trust Him as your Savior, yes, but also as your Lord. And if you do that, you receive uh, the greatest gift, the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of God. And you escape the wrath of God. And for the rest of us, for those who have trusted in Christ, who, who've made Him, who've called Him to be, asked Him to be, received Him as your Lord and your Savior, take time this morning before coming to communion to examine your hearts as well. Allow the Lord to reveal, to continue to, to, to reveal any sin that you might be practicing. Allow the Lord to reveal to you uh, any ways that you've been a hypocrite. Ask the Lord in His grace and kindness to forgive your sin. And to give you the power uh, to, to not presume upon His kindness, but to repent of that sin. To turn from your sin and to turn to Christ. Would the, would the ushers and the worship team come forward as we pray? So Again, I'm going to give you a minute or so of silence as they come forward. And then I'll, I'll close in prayer and then we'll... Uh, share in communion together. Let's pray.